Well, good morning. So it's an exciting day when people are getting baptized. There's always a party in heaven that we can't even see when baptisms happen, actually. We might think we get excited, but they get really excited. <laughs> um, this morning, I want to talk about being blessed. And I think that's one of the major concerns often of our life. You know, we just, we just want to be blessed. We want things to go well, you know. However, you know, we, we live in this, this society today where we always have this desire for more. You're never enough. You don't have enough. You know, you're always told, you know, you'll, be, you'll be a little more happier if you just had more. So often we don't walk around feeling that we're blessed. Lots of different def- definitions of what it means to be blessed, but I'm kind of thinking of, you know, what it means to be, you just want to be a little more favored. You, you want to be a little more privileged. You want to live a life of more than enough. You want to be taken care of. And we often, as Christians, even non-Christians, will add a spiritual element to this. And they want God, you know, to, to really take care of things for them. They want God to bless them. But again, with you know, our society being the way it is, we often walk around feeling that we're not blessed. And we develop this perpetual feeling of angst. This un- unsettledness deep inside that can steal our sense of contentment. And kind of the, the root problem that I want to deal with today uh, is called limited thinking, which is a, a, a problem, I guess that's well documented within the realm of psychology. And it refers to, you know, one of the main reasons that people will struggle with really any emotional struggle or mental struggle. Basically, it can kind of be traced back to the fact that your, your thinking is skewed. There's something askew in your thinking. Often we can create mountains out of molehills. We can start having this doom and gloom kind of scenarios overtaking us. We can start spiraling. And you know, there's this Bible story that I think really exemplifies limited thinking very, very well. And specifically, it really keys into this constant desire to be blessed. They just want to be blessed. And they don't think they are. And so they're going to do everything in their power to try to make it work all on their own. And they, you know, they just live this, this whole life of just unsettledness. And that led to a lot of repercussions in their life. And so this is the story of Jacob and Esau. So this is very, very early in human history. So if you've ever heard of Abraham, he has a son named Isaac. And Isaac has two sons named Jacob and Esau. So, so this goes back to Genesis, very early in Scripture. And this kind of narrative covers multiple chapters. We're not going to go through and read every single one of those chapters today. I'm going to read some kind of highlights here and there, and then I'll fill the gaps in for you. Just to kind of give you the story of their life and to show this kind of pattern of limited thinking. It's interesting with these two brothers, they're twins, and even before we, they're even born, Scripture describes it like this battle that happened in the womb. They were fighting in the womb even, so they, they, and they came out fighting. And that was kind of like a foreshadowing what their whole life was going to be like. These two brothers back and forth constantly you know, trying to one-up each other, trying to be more blessed than the other one. And the way they're always instantly described, uh, too, is that they're very, very different. They're like polar opposites. So we're going to go here to Genesis 25 and just read a couple verses, 24 through 26. Uh, this is just kind of the birth narrative, just 
get things going of, of Jacob and Esau. And again, you'll just pay attention to, they're instantly described different. They're very, very different. And there's a bit of poeticness in this, you'll see. All right, here we go. So it says, when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. So they named him Esau, which means red. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. Jacob means just to plant, to kind of come from behind and win. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. All right, so here we have the, the stage set. Two very, very, very different siblings. So Jacob, he's the smooth-skinned mama's boy. He liked to hang, he was a homebody. He liked to hang, out with, hang, hang around uh, the tents. His brother is this very hairy outdoorsman, hunter extraordinaire. He's his father's favorite. Jacob's is his mom's favorite. I can relate far more to being a smooth-skinned homebody, I would say, than a rugged outdoorsman. But anyways, if you go, like, if you think of very, very early human history, it's pretty rough and tumble. It's pretty barbaric. So being a smooth-skinned mama's boy homebody wouldn't exactly be kind of setting you up for success in the world. Being Esau, you know, and he's rough and tumble, he is this, you know, hairy outdoorsman, hunter extraordinaire. He would be excelling way more at that time period in, in life. He fit the spirit of the age way, way better. So you imagine what it would be like for Jacob, always seeing his overachieving, super annoying brother who's just good at all the stuff you probably should be good at at the time. And he's also the oldest. And so back in this kind of ancient culture, and actually it, it, this pattern really has gone throughout uh, history, is that when you had like kind of like this family farm or this family business or this family herd of sheep or goats or whatever, um, basically what they would do is the father would pass on kind of the ownership of all the wealth that they've accumulated to the firstborn. And they would do that to keep kind of the farm together. Like if, if you think, uh, if you just look around the fields out here and you think of the homesteads that used to be here, and if you think if they had like six kids and they gave each kids six equal portions of the homestead of how that homestead would get pretty small, and then if you did it again the next generation, it'd get pretty small and all of a sudden you can't sustain yourself. So that's kind of what they were doing back in the day. They were just like, well, first come, first serve. That's just how they figured out that problem. First one's going to get it all. Uh, and the rest of you are going to just basically work for them. So not exactly the greatest scenario. So Jacob is like already all the time growing up thinking, oh, my brother, he's just so much better at me than all this different stuff. Um, and he's going to get it all. He's going to be wealthy. He's going to be rich. He's going to be taken care of. And I'm going to live in his shadow his entire, my entire life. And he just wanted to be blessed. It didn't seem like a blessed life to him. Jacob said, I just, I just want to be blessed. So famously, Jacob tricks Esau into trading him that birthright, that, uh, that special status that would enable you to be like the, the future leader of the family, the one that's going to inherit all the wealth in the family. And then he kind of needed his father's blessing after he got Esau's permission, and he tricked his father who was blind. Uh, he had to cover himself in goat skins to mimic how hairy Esau was which I always think is really weird. I think that's, that's extra level hairy, okay. But anyways, his trick is a success, and Jacob seemingly, he takes over being, you know, he's going to be the future leader. And these guys are likely kind of like teenagers kind of at this, at this time, fighting teenagers. <laughs> 
Anyway, so Esau finds out his brother has stolen his, this blessing. And so Esau is now the one that is thinking, I'm not going to be blessed. I'm going to live a life that is just, you know, poverty to the max, basically. I'm going to live in my brother's shadow. And this, this is no good. And so we're going to read when he finds out that his brother has stolen this blessing. His brother has usurped him. And you'll, I've, I've even underlined it for you where you're going to see this constant desire that is on his heart. So this is Genesis 27, 34 through 38. It says, When Esau heard his father's words, he let out a loud and bitter cry. Oh, my father, what about me? Bless me too, he begged. But Isaac said, Your brother was here and he tricked me. He has taken away your blessing. Esau exclaimed, No wonder his name is Jacob, for now he has cheated me twice. First he took my rights as the firstborn, and now he's stolen my blessing. Oh, haven't you saved even one blessing for me? He sensed the angst that's in his heart. Isaac said to Esau, I have made Jacob your master and have declared that all his brothers will be his servants. I've guaranteed him an abundance of grain and wine, which is what is left for me to give you, my son. Esau pleaded, do you have only one blessing? Oh, my father, bless me too. Then Esau broke down and wept. See, there's that pattern there, blessing, blessing, blessing. I just want to be blessed. Is there even one blessing for me? It's like, be blessed or bust. That's kind of how, how they were thinking. So Jake, or Esau obviously gets very upset about this whole thing. And she wants his brother dead. It's a sibling rivalry dialed right up here. He wants his brother dead. So, uh, Jacob has to run for his life. So speaking about a pattern that just continues, Jacob ends up living with his aunt and uncle, his, his uncle Laban, um, and he gets into basically this battle of wits with his, his uncle, the competition, the comparison, it all just keeps continuing. And there's a battle to be blessed all throughout that. When you read that whole narrative, it's just a battle to be blessed, a, a battle to one-up the other one. And then Jacob gets duped into marrying both of Laban's daughters, Leah and Rachel, Obviously not God's design for marriage. And if you read kind of who these, these sisters are, you'll see that exact same narrative going on. They're polar opposites from each other in constant comparison with each other, constantly fighting of who's going to be blessed more than the other one. Whenever you see an obvious pattern like this show up in the Bible, pay attention. <laughs> so this, this kind of first part of Jacob and Esau's story, which also kind of spins off to some other people's story, which has the same kind of theme going throughout it, um, very much so is showcasing limited thinking. So I want to show you probably the, like the, the, fir the first thing we're going to talk about today, which is what can steal your contentment, a type of limited thinking that can make you walk around thinking you're not blessed and that you need to be blessed more, and you're always looking at what other people have and you don't, and that's comparison. So comparison, it is right at the root of this whole issue, and it, it goes right back to the beginning of this story. Here's two people, look, they're so different. And then they're constantly comparing one another to each other. You know, Jacob is a smooth-skinned mama's boy. You know, Esau sounds an awful lot like a werewolf. You know? <laughs> He's super hairy. Stop, by the way. Don't, don't add that to your theology. <laughs> but, you know, Jacob, he was looking around, and he said, I don't fit in. I'm different. And I'm like my brother. And he would look at his brother and say, he has things I don't. He has a path to success that I don't. You know, he'd be focusing on what his brother had and he didn't. 
and that just ate him up inside. Then you go with Rachel and Leah. They're polar opposites, and they wage this war of comparison. It made life miserable for everyone. Jacob was uh, then later in life, he's super focused on what his uncle has, and he doesn't. And his whole life is about bridging that gap and trying to overtake him. So we tend to lose sight of the fact that it is okay to be different than other people. It's okay to have different skill sets, okay to have a different life story, it's okay to have different blessings. Fitting in is overrated. And if you, if you live your life constantly comparing yourself to others, it's going to eat you alive. So what you have to do is constantly tell yourself that there is nobody walking around this, this earth that is like you. There will never be, and there never has been. You're an entirely unique creation. You're different, and there's no change in that because God made you that way. And he's a very brilliant creator. He didn't do all this copy and paste stuff and make all these people that are super similar to each other. He didn't get lazy. No, he very brilliantly created unique people again and again and again and again and again. He designed you very specifically. He formed you in your mother's womb to be who you are. And he has a very specific purpose and plan for your life that nobody else can live or accomplish. You truly are incomparable to others. We can't define ourselves based on others. You know, if you look different than other people, newsflash, you're supposed to. Just because aspects of your life are different than someone else, it doesn't mean you're lesser than. It doesn't mean that you're living some sort of substandard life. It doesn't mean that someone else is more loved by God than you are. It doesn't even mean they're happier than you are. We have this constant pressure in this society you know, to keep up with the Joneses, to conform to culture. But here's the thing. You're the only one running in your lane. So you need to learn to run your own race. God has a very specific race for you to run. And he's training you to run that specific race. Because there's things that he has called you to and made you for that no one else can do. So don't look to the left or to the right. Look to him. The flip side is if you let comparison take hold, I can guarantee you it's going to ruin your life. Because this is what, in this whole narrative, Jacob and Esau, Jacob, uh, Jacob and Uncle Laban, Rachel and Leah, just this constant toxic battle, this constant state of unsettledness. And a life of constant inner turmoil is not really living. So here's a second limited thinking problem. It's very present in today's culture, and it is shown in this story as well. It's what I'll call tunnel vision. So you'll notice that especially with Jacob and Esau, but you'll see it with the other, the other ones in this whole narrative too. They always think that there's, just, there's only really one way. There's just one way for me to be blessed. There's only one way for me to be happy. There's only one way for me to be significant. And if I don't get that, I'm hooped. You know, for Jacob and Esau, it was, I need to have the birthright. I need to be the firstborn. I need to have that status. I need to secure my future and to know I'll be the leader of the family and I'll be wealthy. And they put all their eggs in this basket they wanted to be the top dog, and if they weren't, they thought this is a nightmare scenario. I'd argue that tunnel vision is actually one of the biggest problems that's in the Bible. And God has to constantly blow it up. He has to constantly deal with that. Here's the thing. 
when we have such a narrow mind and a narrow way of looking at things, God doesn't like that because he's limitless. He's all-powerful. With him, all things are possible. So limited thinking is a big problem for him because he's not limited. This subversion of expectation, what people think should happen, and the way that things are done, that's what God has to just blow that up constantly throughout Scripture. Funnily enough, in Genesis, there's this pattern of the forsaken firstborn. So this, this, this way that this, the earth, this earthly society was living, that the firstborn is going to get all the wealth, they're the one that's favored, they're the, you know, they're the special one, that's the way that they were living. And God continually, to prove a point, would, would work through someone that wasn't the firstborn. You'll see that again and again and again. Right through Genesis, straight up to, um, to David. It's a thousands of years. And he was basically like, listen, this is a stupid way of thinking. <laughs> I'm not going to play according to these strange rules that you've, you've created. God's like, I'm not defined by birth order. I'm not constrained by birth order. I'm not constrained by human tradition. I'm not constrained by your economic system. I'm, I can bless anyone, anytime, anywhere, and watch me do it. Here's a funny thing I think we do all the time. We ask God to bless us, and then we, then we tell him how to do it. God bless me, but it's got to fit my box. It's got to fit my comfort zone. It's got to look just like that other person over there. We do that all the time. We often think, you know, we're, you know, we're not going to be blessed unless it fits my box. The other thing is we often have a very limited view of ourselves. We kind of survey the world and we think of all the different paths we could take and then we just begin to say well I'm not smart enough for that one I don't have the right personality for that one I don't know enough people for this one you know we, we have these very limited things we speak over our life I can't do this I can't do this I can't do this or we create these very overly you know kind of generalized statements and laws of life like you need to be rich to be to be happy maybe you're a kid in school and you think for me to really enjoy the high school experience, I need to be popular. Or maybe you've been burned in some way or another and you'll make a very overgeneralized statement, like something like, you know, people who live in Edmonton are stupid. Don't trust them. As if it's like, the, like a law to live by. We, we have those kind of things all the time. Or you could be like, long-distance relationships never work out. Because you tried it once, it didn't work. So that's the law now. It's just the law. We do that all the time, have these very limiting ways of speaking to things. So if God is kind of, you know, laying his finger on some of these thought patterns in your life, deal with it. <laughs> we have to do mental inventory ever so often and make sure we don't have a tunnel vision kind of scenario that we've devised, whether for God, whether for ourselves, or whether for others. And really, you just need to look at these. Are these rational? A lot of the times they're not. Or, you know, am I just disillusioned? Is that why I have a limited view? Why I'm looking at things very, very limited? Am I disillusioned? Am I hurt? Or am I just a control freak, you know? <laughs> like my ducks in a row. God has to tell me continually, Chris, it's not about your ducks, it's about my ducks. Because <laughs> I like my ducks in a row. Sometimes we're just, you know, very comfort-obsessed. We, we just have this little bubble we want to stay in, and we, and we create a 
this wall of limited thinking all the way around that. Good thing to ask yourself when you, you think through these patterns in your life. Am I seeing things like somebody that serves a loving God with unlimited power? Am I seeing things like that I am a beloved son or daughter of God that has been put on this earth to make a massive difference in this world? Am I seeing things like someone that believes anything is possible because God's on their side? We have to continually do a bit of a mental inventory. Does this line up with God, the God of the universe, the God that can make all things right? want to shift gears here and I'm actually going to give you three there's many different ways of limited thinking if you google it actually you'll see it right away um, you can relate to it but there's uh, three, way, three ways I think to deal with limited thinking and I think are exemplified in the story three ways especially God's going to show up in Jacob's life in particular to help him out so Jacob he had to, yeah, he had to run away from home hung out with his uncle for a while made himself some money by duping his uncle basically Eventually he heads back home, fairly decently wealthy. But then he hears his brother Esau is coming for him. <laughs> Last he had heard years and years ago is that his brother wanted to kill him. And he also hears that Esau has an army of 400 guys with him. So uh, if you're in this scenario, you're probably thinking the worst. I'm about to die. <laughs> so Jacob's freaking out. He, 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 he's known as being like kind of a... A master planner, uh, like he's uh, he's smart and he can dupe people out of stuff, and so he's always trying to figure the way out of the problem. So he starts coming up with all these escape plans. He's going to split his family in half; they're each going to go different ways. At least half of them's going to survive Esau's army. And then he also comes up with this bribery plan that he's going to send a bunch of gifts towards Esau. Hopefully, that'll just you know deal with Esau, appease him, so Jacob can save his skin. So he's lying awake the night before he knows Esau's close. This is going down tomorrow. There's no avoiding this. He's lying awake, scheming, trying to figure his way out of this problem when all of a sudden he gets attacked. Pitch black, someone jumps him, starts this wrestling match. So who do you think that he thinks that he's fighting? Esau. Turns out it's God. Who he has been, little does he know, he's the true person he's been wrestling his whole life. The person he's been wrestling with his whole life is God he has an inability to trust God to deal with his circumstance. So God had to kind of make that a little more clear by going toe-to-toe with him, live and in person, a rumble in the jungle. <laughs> so let's go to Genesis 32, 24-26, read this narrative. It says, This left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go, for dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. There he is again. He just wants to be blessed. So this is funny that I, I think he's, he's desperate to be blessed. He's wrestling with God. And somewhere along the way, Jacob realized, I'm not wrestling with a natural power here. So he's asking to be blessed. And God happens to mess up his hip. <laughs> By popping it out of its socket, putting it back in. So I Googled this. What happens when you get your hip pulled out of its socket? So you end up with tendon damage, and it would take about three months to recover. A lot of people say Jacob walked with a limp for the rest of his life. That's 
people with imaginative imaginations. Um, I Googled it. <laughs> Three months recovery. So the question is, why is it that God would just so happen to make it that he has this severe limp for about three months or so. Not a long-term injury. Why, why in that moment does God say, I need to mess up your hip real quick? So ask yourself, what does Jacob really want to do in this moment? He wants to run. He wants to run away from Esau. He wants to, even if it means half his family is going to die, he wants to escape. He wants to run away. And God is saying, no, you're going to deal with this problem. You can't run. So Jacob is forced into meeting with Esau, this guy with 400 army guys with him, who last he saw wanted him dead. And this is what happens, Genesis 33, 3-4. Then Jacob went on ahead. As he approached his brother, he bowed to the ground seven times before him. He's trying to appease him. He's trying to, he's trying to soften him up. Verse 4. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they both wept. Not at all what Jacob expected. Not at all what the reader expected. We, ha we haven't heard from Esau in some decades in this story. We have no idea. Last we heard, he wants Jacob dead, and then we hear he's got an army of 400 guys with him. So we're expecting, same as Jacob, well, Jacob's a dead man. Good luck, Jacob. But Esau sees him, runs to him, hugs him, kisses him, and begins to cry. So thankful that he had met his brother once again. Not at all what we had expected in this story. But reconciliation happens. The two of them realize in that moment that the relationship meant, meant far more than this whole birthright business, this whole blessing business, this whole one-upping and sibling rivalry that they had. And they both got to realize, you know what? God has been with us and he has taken care of us. So the first way that it's exemplified that we need to deal with our limited thinking is to deal and heal. We need to deal with our trauma, our hurt, our pain, these patterns of thinking that have showed up in our heads, and we need to heal from them. Again, if you were to look this up, Google limited thinking, more often than not, they come from some type of a past hurt, a past trauma, some type of a life-shaping event or, comp, uh, or context. For Jacob and Esau, they just had this sibling rivalry that kind of shaped the way that they saw the world. And this atmosphere of competition and this desperation to be blessed, it just continued throughout the rest of their life, and it went through all sorts of different scenarios, and it just really just overtook their life. This is a very human thing to do. We often let you know, our past circumstance, our past woundings, our past contexts to just continue throughout the rest of our life. A lot of people walk around with a woe is me mentality. Other people, I'd say, are, are kind of like a quote-unquote quote unquote, burn victim, meaning that they went down one path once, they got burned, and they just won't go ever down that path ever again. Tried it once, didn't work, not going to do it again. You know, others just develop limited thinking patterns based on just, you know, circumstances in their life. You know, it could be sibling, you know, sibling rivalries, or maybe it was a bullying, or childhood divorce that you watched happen. Just any disappointment of any kind can often bring this pattern of limited thinking and skew the way you look at things. You know, for Jacob and Esau, you know, they had this, this rivalry, this comparison. And they needed to deal with that before they could heal. They would... You know, they would have perpetuated this problem throughout their entire life until God said, you need to heal from this. Jacob didn't realize that he was walking with a limp his entire life, metaphorically speaking. Within his soul, he had this 
this comparison, this competition, this, this he's living in the realm of it's never going to be good enough. I need to be blessed. I need to be better than. He was walking with that limp his whole life. And God had said, this needs to heal. This needs to be dealt with. So in the, in, in, in the physical, he wanted to run away. He didn't want to deal with them. Didn't want to deal with the past. So God says, no, you can't run no more. This is the end of this. <laughs> Forces a confrontation. And it turned out to be a very good one. It was probably a very tense and hard thing for Jacob to do to walk towards his brother. But then it became the best thing that probably ever happened to him and his brother. I think given their history, this decades and decades long battle, all of a sudden they have this profound moment of reconciliation. See, facing your past, it can be very, very scary. But it needs to happen in order for you to heal. I'd actually argue that most people are probably unaware of how much their past is dictating their future. It's dictating their whole life. They have these patterns that they've had, these limps that they've been walking around with their whole life, and they don't even realize it's coloring the way they see the world. Jacob didn't at all realize that he was doing the same thing again and again and again in all these different scenarios he was in, going round and round the same mulberry bush, living this life of comparison, competition, angst. I think for, you know, for us human beings that are often we're just unaware of how this is really this stuff that we've gone through is affecting us. It, it's kind of like you, when you become accustomed to having like dirty lenses on your glasses, basically. You become accustomed to you know, just seeing things skewed. And you, you believe to think that that's the, that's the norm. It's kind of like you know, not being able to smell your own smell. You, know, you, you, just, you lose sight of it. You become blind to it. But of course, we serve a supernatural God who will often very lovingly and gently point out, hey, this needs to change. Sometimes we use somebody else to come alongside and say, hey, this, this seems a little bit skewed. There's a bit of a pattern here in your life. There seems to be this hurt that needs to heal in order for you to move on. So if God is pointing something out in your life that needs to heal, that you need to deal with so you can heal, make it a mission to pursue healing, whatever it takes. Because you do not want to live a life decade after decade after decade of the same stuff causing the same problems. thing is, you might, because God is supernatural, some people, some people in this church could testify even just one Sunday sometime, God just dramatically removed a wound, a wound, a wound in their, their soul, just like that. He took away a hurt and a pain. Sometimes that can happen in a moment. Other people can testify that, you know, I had to battle it out for months on end. I had to, you know, I had to read books. I had to get prayer. I had to really open up about my pain to people. I, I had to go to, I had to hang out with a pastor, or I had to go to a counselor, or I had to do this this journaling thing, or I had to fast and pray even. The thing is, you need to have a mindset of, I need to heal from this, whatever it takes. I need to deal and heal with this, whatever it takes, because this is not how I want to live my life. I don't want to live my life walking with this, this kind of limp. And again, with God, all things are possible. I don't know if you have a sibling that wants you dead. <laughs> I'm sure your scenario is probably not that bad, not as bad as Jacob and Esau. It's probably made as big of a problem as Jacob and Esau. God fixed that. 
God does not want you living a life of constant discouragement and despair and angst and walking around in this mode of comparison, walking around feeling you're lesser than, walking around feeling like you're a victim. It's not what God has for you. So whatever it takes, make up in your mind, I'm going to deal with this and I'm going to heal. Because with God, all things are possible. Secondly, another, another way of getting out of limited thinking, it's exemplified in this story, is to trust in God's storytelling ability. See, Jacob and Esau were so worried that things weren't going to work out unless they lined up to what their dream was. Everything needed to be just like they thought it was supposed to be. But then they even ended up living this crazy roller coaster of, of a life, and things actually turned out okay and, you know, better beyond their wildest imaginations. Both these guys wanted to be top dog. They wanted, they wanted uh, to be wealthy. Funnily enough, if you think now, thousands and thousands of years later, people know their names. They're some of the most famous people that ever walked the face of the earth. God had a plan for their life that was ridiculously far beyond their expectation. Also, if you look at kind of the genealogies in the Bible that we, <laughs> we often just skip over, they're, they're both the father of multiple, uh, like, nations, if you follow their genealogy. Nations were, came out of their families. What's also kind of funny along this narrative of, you know, trusting in God's storytelling ability is, as I was kind of alluding to, we only follow Jacob's story when we're reading through Scripture. We have no idea. This, we're completely in the dark of what's going on with Esau for, you know, decades. Have no idea. No idea what's going on with Jacob. Jacob didn't know the reader doesn't know. And that's very purposeful because it's showing, because there's often a lot of scenarios that we live where we have to trust God with the unknown. We can deal with our problems, sure, but what about the other person? We don't know. Not in their head, not in their heart. Can't tell. Sometimes we're not even in a relationship with them anymore. God is. We have to trust his storytelling ability. If he's working on your heart, guaranteed he's working on theirs too. We have to trust that he's, he's working to make you know, things right behind the scenes. He's working in a way that we can't see that we're completely unaware of. And this story, of course, ends up subverting expectations. And we find that Esau, the guy that seemed kind of even worse off than Jacob was, God dealt with him profoundly. He let go of his... Remember when we read of how bitter he was that his brother had stolen that birthright and blessing? Yet God had just radically changed his heart point that he runs to his brother that had betrayed him runs to him and hugs him and kisses him there was a different end of the story than was expected and it's because God is a very good storyteller here's a key ta- here's a key takeaway when we have limited thinking what you're doing is you're wrestling with God same thing as what Jacob was doing his whole life. And God had to manifest naturally to kind of make that known to him. We're often wrestling with God and thinking that we're a better storyteller than he is. Because just think of how often you write this story for your own life. I always kind of laugh. Um, it's probably more happens when you're younger. It's like, hey, what are you, you going to do with your life? Or, hey, what, what's your five-year plan or your ten-year plan? And, and, and we just think, oh, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to go here. And, I'm, and it's like... We have no ability to actually, you know, think five minutes into the future, let alone five years. But it's just kind of a funny thing in our culture where we think we can write our own story. 
And just think of kind of all the fantasies we have about our life. It's a very common problem today is the realm of fantasy. And that's just thinking that we're a better storyteller than God is. If you, if you wrote your own story, you'd probably take out all the good parts in your own book. And the good parts of any book, if, you have, if, you're, if you're a reader and you're reading the books, the best parts are the super tense parts where you just can't wait to turn the page to find out what happens next. When you're reading the story, that's, that's the part that you, the climax, the most intense part of the story that you want to know. Oh my goodness, how's this going to resolve? If you were writing your own story, you would take out all of that stuff. You take out all the adversity you've ever faced. You just make it smooth sailing. And I guarantee you, you would not be the person you are today if you just made your whole life smooth sailing. I've written on my whiteboard a slogan that says, smooth seas don't make good sailors. We need to trust God's a better storyteller than us. Even when there's some twists and turns and things are looking pretty scary for a bit, we need to trust he's a better storyteller than we are. He knows the path to being blessed far better than we do. See, these idealized dreams that we can come up with, they can be actually, you know, very, very dangerous. You know, it's okay to have goals and it's okay to have dreams, okay to have a drive towards accomplishing things. We have to just be very, very careful how much power we give our dreams. Because often people have this big drive to accomplish their dreams because they think those dreams are going to make them happy. If I just get married, then I'll be happy. If I just get a raise, I'll be happy. If I just get the bigger house, I'll be happy. And we make our happiness, our joy, our contentment contingent on achieving goals. And often, because, you know, we often think we're a better storyteller than God, we have very fantasized and idealized and romanticized expectations and dreams and hopes. And then we're comparing ourselves to this highly romanticized thing and saying, hey, why doesn't it look like, why does my life look like this? So we need to let go of fantasy. We We need to let go of this idealized, romanticized life story that we've written ourselves. Take ourselves right out of the writer's chair and the director's chair of our life. We need to repent for thinking that we're a better storyteller than God. We need to let go and let God and just to let him lead. And when times get tough, when times get tense, we need to preach to ourselves that God is writing a good story. It's not the story I might have expected, but he's going to turn it out to so- he's going to turn it into something better than I expected. He's the best storyteller. He works things out masterfully. He's the king of the comebacks. He came back from death itself. He's written the world's best-selling book. You're in the hands of a very, very good author. Again, you remind yourself he's not just a good storyteller. He's an all-powerful storyteller. He'll make a way where there seems to be no way. Now just imagine if Jacob had preached to himself that God's a good storyteller that he didn't need to have this idealized and romanticized and fantasized version of his life that he thought, if I do X, Y, and Z, I'm going to be blessed. This is what needs to happen for me to be blessed. Just imagine how different his life would have been. He would have saved himself so much hurt. He would have saved, him, saved other people from a lot of hurt, too. Just imagine, I know, like, we can all relate to this. How many times in your life have you been stressing out about stuff, and you could have saved yourself all that stress, stress if you would have preached to yourself, God is a good storyteller. And he's writing a story for me. 
just think, you know, if you, if you had other people come around you, or if Jacob had other people come around him and say, hey, let, you don't need this firstborn thing. Listen, you serve the God of the universe, man. You're having some tunnel vision right now. Why are you living a life of comparison? Why are you letting your past dictate your future? You need to deal with that. You need to heal, man. Come on. Like Jacob's grandparents, Abraham and Sarah. Pretty amazing story. Jacob, you literally watched God just take them out of one nation to another and, and, and do all sorts of amazing things to your grandparents. Don't you think you're going to be okay? How about your own parents, Isaac and Rebecca? God did amazing things in their life. Can't, can't you believe he'll do the same thing in you? Imagine the difference that would have made in Jacob's life if somebody just began to say and talk to him, hey, trust in God's storytelling ability. So we need to preach that to ourselves and allow others to preach that to us too. And in a loving way, do it to others as well. Thirdly and finally, another way of dealing with limited thinking is to know that you're blessed and you're made to be a blessing. Really cool part of Jacob's story is right after he ran away from home, right after his life seemingly just fell apart and he had lost everything, he shows up at a place called that would become to, kind of be known as Bethel, which is where we get our church name from. It means house of God. And God encounters Jacob in a dream. And again, you look, at, you look at the whole theme of Jacob's life. I want to be blessed. I want to be blessed. I want to be blessed. This is what J God says to Jacob in this dream. He says, Jacob, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And I am with you, and I'll never leave you. It obviously took a little while for that to settle in for Jacob. Just think of how interesting that is. Jacob wanted to be blessed, and God said, Jacob, I'm making you into the blessing. You're concerned about yourself being blessed, but I'm going to make you such a blessing, you're going to bless all the nations of the world. Just imagine if Jacob walked around thinking that rather than worrying about himself being blessed, he started to think, I'm going to be a blessing, because that's what God has declared over my life. I'm going to be a blessing. He had no idea he was about to be blessed beyond measure. Far beyond his comprehension. What if he had walked around thinking like that? I'm going to be a blessing. Just think, if he had known that he was already blessed, he had the God of the universe with him every step along the way, encountering him, speaking to him. He came from like this amazing family. If he had walked around knowing that he's blessed and he's a blessing, just think of how he would have been able to minister to Esau how he would have been able to minister to Uncle Laban, to Rachel and Leah. Who knows who else? All of them had the same problem that Jacob had, and he could have helped them escape from that prison. He said, listen, I've been there, and that's not the way you're supposed to live your life. Listen, there's a God out there that loves you, that wants to take care of you, that wants to take your life in, a way, in, in greater ways than you could ever imagine. Stop worrying about being blessed. You are blessed. You're blessed beyond your wildest dreams already because God is with you. And rather than living your life worrying about being blessed, realize that you're being made into the blessing. That's a big takeaway from, for us here this morning. We need to focus on being the blessing more than we're focusing on being blessed. This entire world is living just to be blessed. They want to be blessed. They want to be taken care of themselves. That's not the way we're supposed to work, work and live as Christians. We are the blessing. We are blessed beyond measure. We have the God of the universe who loves us, with us, even living inside of us.
The world will try to convince you that you live in lack. But I'm telling you, when you live with God, you have more than you could ever dream of. The beautiful thing with God, because he's all-powerful, is he can use all the deep wounds, the deep hurts, all these patterns of limited thinking, even all of the, the pain and the hurts that you've caused others and has been caused to you. He can use all of that and redeem it. Again, just think of the story in Jacob and Esau. They, had a big, they created some big messes, but now their story ministers to people and has been ministering to people for thousands and thousands of years. Who knows what God can do with your story? He can redeem anything and everything. God, I thank you for the shifts that are happening in people's hearts this morning. From having, having this deep desire and this, this wanting to be blessed to instead realizing that they are blessed beyond measure. And that their life is made to be a blessing. Like Jacob, our lives can even be a blessing at such a scale that we can bless nations. That's what you can do. You've got dreams for our life that are way bigger than our dreams. You've got plans for our life that are way bigger than our plans. So God, as a congregation here this morning, we want to submit to your plans and your, <laughs> your dreams, your ways, not our ways, because your ways are better. God, I think of all people here in this congregation that have had, you know, tough parts of their story. They might have times where, you know, things got really tough, even between family members or closest friends, or they just walked through some deep, deep valleys. I pray, God, this morning that they're just going to be reminded that you can redeem it all. You can make something beautiful out of their story because you're all-powerful. And this is what you do. You're always in the business of turning death into life. You're always in the business of redeeming. So I just pray for hope today and even excitement that a new day is dawning. God, I pray for those of us that, are, you know, that we're wrestling with you. We're really wrestling to trust. I pray, we, I pray that that would just even cease today. That just a new trust would overtake us. And I pray that this would just be such an amazing confidence that we could walk around with that would be such a ministry to our world. A world that's living in constant angst. A world that's living in this, this constant comparison mode. This constant competition and I pray, God, that this, these people in this congregation could be such an amazing testimony, could be such an amazing witness to this community and beyond of people that actually, just, they just know they're blessed. They're not living this life of angst. They're not, they're not trying to keep up with the Joneses. They're not, they're not living this rat race. But instead, there's just a contentment beyond explanation. And I pray, God, that that will start conversations. So why are you like this? Where's this joy come from? Where's this peace come from? And that'll be an opportunity to say, well, it comes from Jesus. It comes from the fact that I know I'm in the hands of my creator. And I know I've been designed for a very specific purpose, to run in a very specific lane. And God's got amazing things for my life. God, I just want to pray for these baptisms too. And I pray you just continue to preach through these. You continue to inspire God, as these are people that are saying that, you know, I'm putting my trust in God. I'm allowing God to write my story. I'm allowing God to be Lord of my life. I pray that would encourage other people to do the same. In your name we pray, amen.